podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Find out how good you are. I know how good I am. Having three children with autism and being around them all the time, they make me better as well. If Wilkinson had missed that kick, I'd have been moving house. <laughs> but my favourite one that really made me was my love triangle with Triple H and Stephanie. And uh, how did you get this story? How did you know about this? Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technowood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we've recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the best equality in social sports podcast. That's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is the president of Matchroom Sport. He's helped to grow a number of sports such as boxing, darts and snooker. Welcome to the podcast, Barry Hearn. It's a pleasure to be here, my friends. Absolutely great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We like to start our podcast with some quickfire questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? Well, I'm ready to go. Bring it on. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Um, I don't know. There's, there's lots of... I'm going to upset someone. Anthony Joshua. I'm going to say Anthony Joshua. Right. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? No one. I'll just love my life. I wouldn't swap my life with anyone for an hour, let alone a day. I make, the most, I make the most of every hour. I don't want to be anybody else. If you could go back to one, one day in your life, what will it be? I think probably April 1981 when Steve Davis won the World Snooker Championship. Everybody in their life has a moment when it's a breakthrough moment, you know, and you never know when it's going to come. And you must never lose your dreams. You've always just got to push on. And when Steve Davis won his first world championship, that changed my life as well as his. So if I look back, that was the time when my career really started and, and suddenly I had a reason for getting up in the morning. I had a plan and uh, it's been fun ever since. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up? I think like most kids, we don't really know what's going on around us, do we, when we're children, you know? I mean, I was fortunate and blessed to have a loving family. You know, we were poor. I I never knew we were poor because I was a child and, and my father was ill most of the time when I was growing up. He died very young. But kids... We just get on with it. I mean, I, I suppose there's a lesson there for autism and, and, and everything else is you have to play the cards you're dealt. Now, it's up to us and the character that we have and the spirit and the spirit and the passion that we have inside us is do we, do we roll over or do we get up? Do we brush ourselves down and say, let's, let's, I'm ready for this. 
So as a kid, I grew up very happy. I didn't know. It wasn't until later in life when I looked at what other people had and I said, why haven't, why haven't we got art? Why haven't we got an indoor toilet? Why haven't we? You, know, you don't ask those questions as a, as a baby, do you? You ask them when you're 10, 11, 12. And that was when the time when I realised that there's, an, there's another world out there that I wasn't in. And I, and I actually, I wanted to be in it. And there was, there was two or three ways to get in it. You know, in life, you go down a road and there's different, different roads leading off that road. You become a good person. Are you a bad person? Are you naughty? Are you bright? You know, everyone's got This is the thing that frustrates me about people, especially young people. Everyone in this world is the best in the world at something. The sadness is, for whatever reason, a lot of people don't find out what that something is. So I started off thinking, right, I'm not a genius. I'm not really very smart at all. I wasn't clever. I had the ability to work hard. Doesn't, that doesn't take any brains, you know. I mean, these people around me were so clever. They spoke languages. They unbelievable. But the, what they didn't have was my belief in myself. And my belief was let's just start an hour earlier than anyone else and let's stop an hour later than anyone else. And let's see where that takes me. And actually, it took me a long way. So early life was very dominated by my mother. My mother was a bit of a snob. My mother cleaned house. She was a child lady, right? So it was a very menial job. Being inside her wanted the best for her children, as most mothers do. But, you know, where we were, which was a East End of London Council estate, she made me go into, she made me to go to elocution lessons. As you can see, they didn't work. But she wanted me. <laughs> She wanted me, she was a bit of a snob. She went, she made me go into verse appreciation society and, and spout poetry and things like that because she wanted something better for her children. And that really was the drive. She was the driving force that made sure that I became a successful person, really, because of her values. And the values was built around appreciating that I'm, we're not rocket scientists. We're not that smart. I'm not that smart. Uh, you are work harder than you do. So that's, that 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 was that was the essence behind it, and it eventually it works, doesn't it? You know, if you you know, I, I was very fortunate. My mum got me into a firm of chartered accountants, which was very difficult to do from where my background was: no university, no family money, nothing. But somehow or the other, she got me into a firm of chartered accountants on six pounds a week. It wasn't a lot of money. And three and a half years later, I became one of the country's youngest qualified chartered accountants. And from then onwards, I just kept a work ethic. And, you know, listen, I'm not stupid. You know, I have, I have your good idea. You know? um, and I maximise what I've got in me. I maximise. I, I know I'm never, I'm never going to be. I'm, you're not going to see me on University Challenge. I'm just not. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit too thick for that. But I've got common sense, you know, like most of us. We're born and it's how we're brought up, you know, and I want value for my money and I want to give other people value for their money. So these are some good points in life to make sure there's too many people make excuses in life and create hurdles. I smash through her because I'm relentless. And once I decide I want to do something, I don't give up. 
I don't ever, ever give up. And I'm coming up at 74 now, and I'm, I'm the same now. I drive everyone crazy. I drive people nuts because they're like, why don't you just, you know, retire and get your feet up and go on a desert island and drink cocktails? And, yeah, I like to do that for a week, but then I like to come back and work. That's what I've done all my life. So early life was happy, and it laid the foundations for a very successful later life. In the early 70s, you bought a snooker hall in London. Did you ever think when you bought that snooker hall 50 years ago that you would be where you are today? I can't believe where I am today anyway. <laughs> it's a joke. It's funny, you know, in, in life, when you need a helping hand, you know, when you're really starting off and you really need a helping hand, more than likely you get a kick in the nuts which is not not a good helping hand, is it? No. When you get to my age and you've got loads of money and power and whatever, there's a queue of people want to give me things for nothing. Isn't that weird? I don't need anything for nothing. When I did need something for nothing, no one ever gave me anything. So in those days, in 19, in, in fact, in 1973, I bought a chain, not one, I bought a chain of snookles the company I was working for. Uh, it wasn't mine. I mean, I was I was financial director. I'd left chartered accountancy and gone into business. Doing okay. I was, you know, bought a house, got married, doing okay. Yeah, I was enjoying my life. And then the company I was working for started not to do very well and they were in trouble. But the snooker halls were going really well. So bought third of the company I was working for, for very small money, and concentrated on the snooker halls and, and built up um, that business. And then in 1982, I sold that business for quite a lot of money. I made quite a lot of money. I was rich. I'd never <laughs> been rich before. You know, someone gave me a check and I didn't have an overdraft. I thought, and I thought, I've got to spend all this money quickly, taking away my appetite. So I spent it various things, and I started Metro Sport in 1982. And that's the year after Steve Davis won the World Snooker Championships and snooker was booming and I took advantage of the boom because I'm smart, not clever, I'm just smart. I'm I'm street smart. I'm looking at you two interviewing me and I can see you've got a little bit of street smart in you, you know? Mm-hmm. It's in all of us, isn't it? How do we... How do we do I make? I used to wake up every day thinking, how can I make some money? What do I have to do? Fortunately for me, because my mum was so scary, I didn't do anything illegal. She brought me up to do it the right way. And in the long term, the right way is what works. So I never believed in 1973 that my life would end up where it is today, ever. And I never do. I, I always try my best, and I take what God gives me. I don't think I'm going to make a million, 100 million, billion. I just take, I do the best I can in everything, every day. And, and, and you know, even things like sport, I love. And I'm, I'm just not very good. But I give 100% be pretty useless, really, you know. <laughs> but if I didn't give 100%, I wouldn't be playing at all. I mean, I'm 74 in June. I'm still, I'm playing cricket. I play for the Essex over seven, right? 
I am trying my nuts off <laughs> to stay young. I'm trying so much. I'm getting injured every week. <laughs> and the week after, I come back again. And that's, that's how you have to live your life. Yeah, and you will have disappointments. It's not the disappointments that kill you. It's how you deal with the disappointments that kill you because it comes back to character. You know, autism is something, you know, we've all, we all have to play the cards with them, don't we? Autism is an important subject. People should understand more about it. It's not favours required. No one gets a favour. It's help. It's assistance. It's giving people a chance to make their own way. And in the same way as, you know, you have to understand from your side, it's time to feel sorry for yourself. There's a world out there we're going to, and we're going to smash it. Gonna, that's the attitude I have from day one. And that's the attitude I love to see with youngsters because I know you'll know, you, you rise above the crop just on effort. <laughs> Did I imagine in 1970? No, of course not. I was prepared. If the good Lord gave me an opportunity, it would be rude to say no, wouldn't it? If someone said, would you like to be really, really rich? I thought, oh, God, spoil <laughs> me. Send me the money. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I worked hard. You know, I, I had to make some sacrifices. And, and that goes with anybody, whether you're in business or in sport. If you want to be successful, it's not just, you don't just become successful. You've got to work on it. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace of mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. You then started to promote snooker players and you became manager of Steve Davis in 1976. How important uh, was Steve in your early career? Well, I think uh, he was fundamental, more than important. I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you guys without Steve Davis because he gave me my first real champion, my first opportunity, you know. I mean... It's all very well having good ideas, but you've got to have the talent that goes with it. And whether, you know, if you're in boxing today, it's, it's all about Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua. Uh, and if you've got an interest in the sport, you need to have that type of representation. So Davis, Snooker was so big in the 80s, huge. And whoever had Steve Davis was a big player. And I had Steve Davis. And the nicer thing about it really is you fast track now, 2022 or whatever year your listeners are listening to, if you put this in a time, the year 2022, Steve Davis is still my best friend, which is rather nice 50 years, 40, 50 years later. You know? It's incredible. So, yeah, he was, he was absolutely fundamentally important and I don't think I'd be where I am today without his early influence. We spoke to Steve uh, Davis last week on the podcast and he told us to ask you what happened when you started sparring with your son, Eddie, in the gym you had at home. Yeah, it wasn't at home. It was in the, the training gym with all the pros. It was very embarrassing. You see, I used to... 
when you talk about sport, I love sport. I love competing and everything. But unfortunately, I've never been any good. It's a bit of a career setback, isn't it? You know, I tried ever so hard. You know, I ran marathons all over the world. I was, I was okay at everything. I mean, I'm still, I'm decent at cricket for my age. My football was barbaric. I was just like used to. But when it came to boxing, I really liked boxing, but wasn't very good. I didn't start boxing until I was about 27. And then, fortunately for me, I had a shoulder injury, which meant I had to retire at 29. And that was the best news ever because I, I wasn't very I carried on keeping fit and I carried on sparring. And when Eddie got to be 16 years old, he was big, big lump. He also got a bit, I call chirpy. You know, had too much to say for himself, was a bit jacked the lad. So he could, I wanted to find out what type of kid he was. I mean, I knew where I'd come from and he was different. You know, he was at a public school, he's living in a big house, he's got money. I wanted to find out whether he was a spoiled rich kid, whether he had a bit of DNA, you know, a bit of background. I thought the only way to find out is take him in the gym and not seven kettles of sh- out of him. <laughs> <laughs> so we went down to the, the Rolford gym and I think Nigel Ben was there or Eubank, Herbie Hyde, lots of world champions were in this gym. And I said, uh, and Eddie, by the way, at 16, was he'd had a couple of amateur fights and he was, he was decent. But he was only 16 and I was 47. I slung, I slung everybody out and said, I need the ring for three rounds. And Eddie came charging at me when the bell went. And I hit him as hard as I could right on the chin and he didn't fall over. And I thought to myself, I have a problem here. He was supposed to fall over. But I wanted to knock him out. <laughs> and anyway, father and son went at it properly. It was a proper fight. Head guards, gum shields, light gloves. And the second round, he hit me to the he hurt me to the body so badly, I went down twice and we never had the third round. So, But I was quite, I was happy because it, it meant that, you know, he was a proper, I was proud of him, you know. I went home happier, but in, a, in somewhat pain. I was in a bit of pain, but I was proud of him and uh, I've remained proud of him ever since. Can snooker players do more at the moment to promote themselves and the sport? Yeah, yeah, I mean... In, the, in sport, just not snooker players, in sport generally, it's probably more important to be famous than to be good. You know, we look at people and we talk, well, the first question we ask them is, how many followers have you got on Twitter or Instagram? Because that's what makes you famous. So every sportsman can do more. Personalities exist, but they have to be brought out more. You know, in the early days, when people were coming out of normal working class surroundings, they all had a personality because they had to be able to talk to survive. Today's sportsmen are much more manufactured, you know, technically. So they know that they're much better players, you know. Golfers are fitter and stronger. Cricketers, you know, they're unquestionably fitter and stronger than they've ever been. Better trained, better coached. Everything from the mind coaches to the you know, the, the, someone in charge of your stretching and your diets and sport has changed. So that, that, that change tends to take out personality because they're concentrating just on focus is just winning, 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 winning. 
They're not focusing on saying, let's, let's be a character, let's, let's, be, let's be a laugh. Sometimes they get through. Ronnie O'Sullivan, for example, does both. He's a character and he's a fabulous player. But a lot of the kids who play snooker, they don't promote themselves well enough because they're too concentrating on survival on the tour and they want to win. And the same applies to golf. So we don't recognise them as easily. I think the, the problem is not the players. It's, it's our problem. We've got to spend more time coaching those players to be media-friendly. And we started doing that, particularly on darts. So you'll see a lot more characters on darts because we're spending time educating, entertaining, talking to players to make sure that they understand that the more famous they are, the more money they will make. And that, at the end of the day, is the reason why people play professional sport. Yes, they love their sport, but they want a sport that changes lives. By being a character and a personality, you will get a bigger platform to change your life and the lives of others involved in your sport. So a lot of the responsibility comes down to us as the organisers to make sure of that. Ronnie um, O'Sullivan is one of Snooker's greatest characters and sometimes controversial. At the Welsh Open in 2016, he refused to get a 147 by potting the pink instead of the black because he said the prize money wasn't good enough. What do you think of that at the time? Well, you have to understand that geniuses are different to normal people. And Ronnie O'Sullivan is a genius. So therefore, you start off by not expecting him to be normal and you won't be disappointed because he's not normal. Mm -hmm. So he says stupid things. In my view, they're stupid things. Maybe in your view, they're stupid things. It doesn't matter. If we want to be entertained by geniuses and by personalities, we have to cut them enough rope to say, go out there and be yourself. You're not going to please everyone. You're, you, I don't get upset by that. I mean, people think, oh, don't you, couldn't you just whack him? You know, couldn't you just... No, that's why he entertains us so much, because he's capable of such random thoughts. So, you know, the funny thing on that 147, he never really, he never really ignored the 147. The pink was the right shot. He played the right shot. But anyway, it doesn't matter because what was the effect of that? Well, for about a week, everybody was reading about snooker. Everyone was talking about Ronnie O'Sullivan. That's what I want. Game over. Listen, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Make me famous. Talk about me. Talk about the sport. That's great. I'm not going to stop that, and it's not going to upset me. I might do a little bit of WWE. I might come out and say, hey, man's are no good, no good. <laughs> but inside I'm thinking, keep it going, Ronnie, keep it going. We're in the papers every day. The TV ratings are going up. The sponsors are phoning me, going crazy. Want to spend money? People are buying tickets. Keep it going, Ronnie. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. No, don't always believe what you're reading the paper. Is it true? In 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 1987, you moved into boxing. Why did you do that for? Well, number one is I've always loved boxing. When I was very young, I wanted to be heavyweight champion of the world badly. I found out afterwards I wasn't very good at fighting. So that's a bit of a career set. <laughs> um, 
But I've always been keen on the sport. I used to go to all the shows. I never thought the shows were really good enough, to be honest with you. I, I've got a very high opinion of myself because it's another lesson in life. If, if you don't believe in yourself, how on earth is everybody else going to believe in you? So you have to pr- you have to uh, produce that feeling. I felt I could do boxing shows better than the people that were doing them. So in 1987, I had a dream that I wanted to see Joe Bugner against Frank Bruno. It was a huge fight in those days. No one had managed to do it. I set my mind to do it, and I achieved that. And along with it, a great night that made a shed load of money and produced huge TV ratings. And more importantly, completely got me addicted to being a boxing promoter because it's exciting. It's exciting sport with great people in it. There's a little bit of aggravation every now and again, which keeps you on your toes, which is good. Can't be complacent. Complacency is a killer. Once you think, once you think you've cracked it, that's really the beginning of you slipping down that slippery slope, isn't it? You've always got to think there's something else, there's something more. So, eighty-seven, I was committed to being the top boxing promoter. I enjoyed it. Um, the little lad I had at home used to stand by me at night, listening to me having rows on the phone with Don King and Bob Arum and Frank Warren and. And he became addicted as well from about five or six years old. So no wonder he's turned out to be the best boxing promoter in the world by a country mile. He's a class act and it's just, that's what we do, you know. We promote shows. I love the buzz of a big show. And boxing can produce shows that you never forget, you know. Anthony Joshua against Klitschko at Wembley. I'll never forget that night, you know. And life, as you get older, especially, it's all right for you youngsters. Yeah, you're only just starting, you know. When you get to my age, you sit in the corner with a hot chocolate, you know, feeling very old, aching because you've been in the cricket nets all right. And you remember. And you, you, you smile, bro. You remember great nights. Wow. Klitschko. Joshua. Now you think of... Chris Eubank, Nigel Ben, Lennox Lewis, Prince Nazim Hamid. And all these memories is what keeps you young and keeps you motivated. So uh, it's a tough game. It's a tough game being a boxing promoter, but it's it's unique and it does provide some wonderful evenings. Um, we would love to see a boxing fight. Yeah, why not? Well, what, what's stopping you? Yeah. Nothing's stopping you, is it? Something's stopping you? Well, someone says it's illegal, they're going to shoot you if you try? Mm. No, so you make your mind up, don't you? Yeah. You make your mind up. Start off. Start off in life. Start off with what you want to do and then work back. Understand that? So in other words, you say, right, well, we want to see a boxing fight. Okay, so do your research. What's coming up in your area? Is there a show you want to see? Can you travel? Can you get there? Can you buy a ticket? If not, can you can you ponce one free? You never know, do you? you never know. <laughs> now you know Bazza. Anything's possible. So, <laughs> but don't take the word no. Don't, you know, people will always try and set you back, knock you back, whatever. That's that's people. We've got to be bigger. We're not going to change people. We're just going to be bigger than them, yeah? So... Set your targets, find out what you want to do, and then ask yourself, right, how do we go about actually get actually do it? The first thing, send yeah, me an email. Amazing. 
you you can you can you can do anything in your life, anything, if you make your mind up to it. That's the attitude you got. What skill do you need to be a great promoter? I mean, it's thinking in certain things in life are all born to do. You know, we've got a passion about something that makes it easier. We've got strength in our in our DNA in our background. You just need. I always think you just need to be committed. You make your mind up that nothing is going to, no obstacle is going to be big enough to stop you, and you'll have your setbacks along that road. If you've got the character, so see, some people want to just get a normal job, don't they? They want to work and, and they're happy. That's okay. What makes you happy? You have to. What makes me happy is walking out with the 50, 60, 70,000 people there, walking out at the Crucible Sheffield. Walking out Alexander Palace for the dance, walking out Wembley for the boxing, that makes me happy. So that's my that's what I do. It's a, it's taken me fifty years to get myself really happy, you know. So don't expect it's going to come easy because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, wouldn't they? You just have to have that deep resolve to find out what you want to do with your life and then stick to that plan and make sure you achieve your goals. Sports promoter, good luck. Yeah. It's not for everybody, you know, sleepless nights, grey hair. Look, it's all right for you. Look, can I have some of your hair, please? <laughs> no, I mean, I really, look, I really need it because it's, it's white. It's not even grey, it's white. And most of that is, is probably worry about doing these big shows. So it's not, it's not just fast cars and champagne. We received lots of messages on social media and our email from our listeners about autism so we decided that each week on the podcast we want to answer some of your questions. So it is time for Autism Question of the Week. Okay, so Avatar, coming to you first. What's yeah. it like to have autism? I need. I was little. I couldn't talk. I use like sign language. Then I grow up, and more talking got better. Well then, so when you were younger, after you said you used a lot of sign language and yeah. now your speech has improved lots and you're able to communicate much better? Uh, yeah, I was like, because like I use like good talking after uh, in the, um, sign language, yeah, we get, get better. Brilliant. And Harvey, what does autism mean to you? Well, Adam, it does mean a lot to me um, because it's been around my whole life. Um, I think I've known from very young age. Um, but my struggles used to be... Um, communicating because here's a funny fact when I used to meet people I used to sniff and lick them um, <laughs> um, it's a very funny thing that I used to do it's quite s- silly but you know it's just part of me and that's what makes me me and I'm happy about that as boxing fans at times the sport can be very frustrating everyone wants to see Anthony Joshua mm. versus Tyson Fury and yet it still is happening. As a former boxer promoter, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you organise fights and why it can be so difficult? Well, you're dealing with everyone. Everyone's got their own goal, haven't they? I mean, uh, we represent Anthony Joshua. I have done since he won his gold medal at the Olympics. He's, he's an auto-close friend. Um, we admire him a lot for what he can do outside of boxing. But we want him to win. So Tyson Fury's people, his, his management, his representation, representatives, they want him to win. 
So it, it starts off with, you know, someone's going to lose, aren't they? We don't live in a perfect world, and there are times. Our job is not only to do the best fights, but actually to get the best deal for our boxers. And we have a, what we call a fiduciary duty to maximise the earnings of our boxers. They're our clients. We work for them. They don't work for us. Uh, but that's difficult to do, and it takes time. Eventually, you may well get Tyson Fury against Anthony Joshua, but it may not be the right time for it financially. And that comes into boxing fans, selfish. They just want to see what they want to see. It's a bit like being a football fan. They don't care if the football club goes bust, as long as they spend $100 million on a player that will score goals. For example, I mean, you know, see, we all get a little bit self-centred. My responsibility, our responsibility is only to our client, Anthony Joshua. What is best for him and the way we operate? But fight fans is like, oh, I want to see Anthony. Well, of course you do. You want to pay your, your ticket money or your pay-per-view and, and you want to see one of the great heavyweight fights. I understand that. But it may not be right for the fighters at this time. Sometimes fights don't get it. They don't get made for whatever reason. It can be egos. It can be money. It can be the site. It can be, you know, it could be who goes in the ring first. It could be whose picture is on the left-hand side of the poster. You have no idea the silly, stupid things that stop fights happening. We're dealing with egos. But we have a responsibility to maximise the value. We are the best in the world and the biggest in the world at promoting boxing events. But it doesn't mean to say that we get our dream fights all the time. But we're always trying to get them. And eventually, generally speaking, eventually we do. But be patient. It's not, we're not trying to make everybody's day too early because the moment that fight's over, both boxers have got their own lives to live. So it has to be right for them because they're the ones taking the chance in the ring, not the guy that buys a ticket. Do TV companies get involved and make fights more difficult? For example, Anthony Joshua is with Sky Sports and Tyson Fury is with BT Sport. So I can imagine there is a big argument about which TV company broadcasts the fight. Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, uh, Anthony Joshua is not necessarily with Sky Sports. He's a free agent. But Sky Sports would probably be his preferred broadcaster. It may be disowned in the UK. But on really big fights like that, you generally find that common sense answers the problem. And if, for example, it was with Sky, Tyson Fury's with BT, and they boxed, then what would happen is both channels would get the fight. So in other words, the fact that they're with different broadcasters would not prevent that fight happening. How close, Barry, have we been in the last three, four years to that fight happening? Has it ever been really close and then not quite happened? Yeah, all the time. I mean, it's, uh, I don't think, I'm, I'm obviously biased because I'm a Joshua of man. But I'm also very truthful because I'm old, close to God, which means when you're close to God, you tell the truth. When I was your age, I used to tell porcupines all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think Tyson Fury didn't really want that fight before. And now it's got very complicated because there are lots of choices for Tyson Fury. He is the number one heavyweight in the world, no doubt. To maximise the commercial value means that he has to fight Anthony Joshua. 
because Anthony Joshua actually is the number one commercial fighter. Makes sense. Joshua yeah. can bring more money to the table because of his global image than Tyson Fury can. But that, that gap is narrowing because Tyson Fury is definitely the number one heavyweight. So we've been very close a few times. And then Tyson Fury decided to fight Deontay Wilder. And then we tried to do it again quite recently. But Tyson Fury decided he wanted to fight someone else. So it'll happen. Give it time, it will happen. But it will happen at, at the pace that exists in boxing. Eventually, and it'll probably be a bit later than, we, than we'd like. You know, I mean, I look at Amir Khan and Hell Brook that recently fought on Sky Box Office. That fight really should have happened five years ago. It wasn't the right time for whatever reason. But it does eventually happen. So be patient, my friend. Be patient. In April last year, you stepped down as chairman of Matrim Sport and your son, Eddie, became chairman. Do you think Eddie can continue to take the company forward and what is next for the company? Yeah, I think in, in many ways, you know, one of, one of the great lessons in life, I always think, is to be able to tell the truth. That it's, a, it's a real, it sounds easy, but it's actually quite a bonus. And the person you have to tell the truth to, above anyone else, is yourself. So sometimes you have to look in the mirror at any age and say, I'm not good enough. Uh, in my case, I looked at it and said, you know what, in today's changing world, other people are better than me. I've got a lot of experience and I'm a good operator and I'm clever. But it doesn't mean to say that Eddie won't be better for the company, not. I think Eddie and his management will take Matram to the next stage of the journey in life. You know, I mean, you have to go back in 1982. You know, it was 40 years ago, Matram started with me and a girl underneath it. Snooker Hall in Romford. Two people. Today, and I've been partially responsible for that, we are probably the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sports promotion company in the world. That's, that's a big achievement. Eddie and young management looks at that and says, Thanks a lot, old man. You've, you've done well. You've built the foundations of the business. You probably might have bought, built the first floor of the business. But we're going to turn it into a skyscraper. So step aside on kids on the block. <laughs> and I think that's great because that's what I want. I want for my children. I want for my staff. I don't want them to live in my shadow because I think they're bigger than my shadow. And I've got to be big enough to appreciate that that is what happens in life. And I've got to sit back and admire them and enjoy it, the journey. Fingers crossed, get free tickets for all the shows. <laughs> I don't want to spend my money. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. With, I'm, I'm actually excited about it. And I think Matram is in a position to grow and grow and grow. And we are only limited in life by our own imagination. Let's wait and see. I'm excited about it. Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Technal Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a grade two star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. 
Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulated learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College. Discover bright futures. I want to switch sports now and ask you about dots. Mm. Matchroom Sport invested in the PDC Professional Darts Corporation. What Was that a gamble when you decided to do that? Or were you always confident it would be successful? Always confident. I believe in myself. You know, if I don't believe in myself, who is going to believe in me? No one. So I was confident. Sometimes my confidence is built out of ignorance. Sometimes it's built out of the love I have for myself. You know, I do love myself a bit. <laughs> Can't help it. It's just the way I am, you know. Uh, but when I went to see my first World Darts Championships, I was impressed by the number of people there. I was impressed they was all having a beer, all smoking a cigarette, all gambling, eating dodgy pizzas, and watching world-class sport. And I thought, this is something totally unique. Who, where else, what other sport is, is take place in during a party? And that's what darts is. It's a party that includes world-class sport. And so I, I thought it, it was a minimal gamble uh, for an amount of money that I could afford. Um, it, it's turned out to be the best business decision I've ever made. And it's grown into a truly global sport. The people that play it come from the backgrounds that I came from. So I'm warm to the fact that they are changing their life by playing professional darts and help them achieve their goals, which is very satisfying to watch. Over the last 25 years, you have taken darts to the next level. It is one of the most watched sports on um, Sky TV and brings in a huge live crowd. What is your secret behind the success of darts? I think just, just understanding target market. Understand what do people want to watch. They want to watch something of very high technical quality. So therefore, you've got to give the players the opportunity to play and the encouragement of changing their life through increasing prize money. But also, we, we need to attract bigger audiences and more and more players. Darts doesn't have any barriers to entry like most sports. You don't have to join an expensive club. You don't have to buy expensive equipment. But you do have to dedicate your life to being good. And kids can play. So, you know, the structure of darts is from six years old upwards. Junior Darts Corporation, Developmental Tour, Q School, the Challenge Tour, Main Tour, and subsequently probably the Seniors Tour, Women's Tour. So the structure's in place, but it ticks boxes. Life can be a bit serious sometimes. Sometimes you get a bit low. You know, you look around thinking, oh, why is, it, why is this happening to me? Oh. No, I've got no money. 
And then you go and have a night of the dance. You come out with a smile on your face and you think, ah, that was. It's like a release, isn't it? Always a release. When you enjoy something, you go and I go to bed at night if I've played cricket and I've somehow scored some runs. I leave every shot, every shot, you know, every good shot. I never leave my bad shots. I put them away. But, you know, darts is like that. You, you go to the darts, you can't wait to tell your mates, I had a terrific night of darts. So it ticks boxes in today's world. It entertains and rewards in equal, equal proportion. That's important. Darts has two organisations, the PDC and the BDO. Did you try to ever buy the BDO? Um, do you think Dart should merge into one organisation? There is, there is only one organisation. The BDO went bust about a year ago, so they don't exist anymore. I did When I first went into Darts, I reached out to them and said, let's meet and talk. And they didn't want to talk to me, so I said, well, in that case, screw you. Uh, it took a few years but eventually of course they went out of business you can't beat this boys we've been talking for 47 minutes you must know you can't beat Bazza you can try and you know what I like it when you try I like it when people try to beat me because it gives me something to get out of bed for and I know I'm going to get you in the end (laughs) <laughs> oh, so we are one organisation of professional darts there is an amateur group called the WDF which is the World Darts Federation they seem nice guys and they do tournaments for amateurs and we do tournaments for professionals so I think each side should help each other where they can and grow the game the most important thing is the size of the cake it's not so much the cake you own it's the size of the cake you can build Common sense, isn't it? You've got a little tiny cup. Yeah. You own that cup. What about if you've got a dirty, great wedding cake and you own 75% of that wedding cake? I'd rather have that in a cupcake, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, same, same. Out of all the sports, um, that uh, matchroom sport, uh, do you, which is your, which is your favourite and why? Yeah, I mean... I have a golden rule because because I'm so lucky and also I only do, I only really do what I love. So all the sports I promote, the fact that I promote them means I love them. You can't be a sports promoter unless you're passionate about the sport because it comes across in the level of job you do. You know, it's not so important to you. Well, with me, I have 750 event days this year around the world. Every one of those days is important to me. Excitement point of view, I think a night of the boxing is number one because it's crash, bang, wallop on the night. It's all over. Uh, if you're trying to build a Agatha Christie novel, you know, suspense, thriller, you'd probably go to the snooker at the Crucible because it builds during 17 days to a crescendo, and that's something special. You're trying to have the best night out ever with your mates and a right good laugh, I go to the darts every single time. And if you're really trying to chill out, you're really trying to get yourself into your own head, I'll go fishing. I'll go fishing quietly. So Fishermania, which was invented nearly 30 years ago, is still the biggest fishing event in the world. But for me personally, most of my good ideas when I go fishing, because there's no hassle, is there? There's no one texting you, emailing you, shouting at you, troubling you. 
It's just you and a fishing rod. And that's where I have most of my good ideas because I have clean thoughts going through my head. So I love them always, the answer to your If Matchroom Sport could invest in one other sport, what would it be and why? We've just started doing uh, a major new campaign now to take over completely Nine Ball Pool, which is American Pool globally. And that's quite exciting from a business point of view. The other, the event I missed, really, I should be the owner, which I'm not, of 2020 Cricket, because I love that. I think that's really good and it's clever. Clever invention. It's when darts meets cricket. You know, 2020 is fun. Um, golf, you know, we own the PGA Euro Pro Golf Tour. We have 500 golf professionals on that. That could be bigger. Just one step at a time, dear Jesus. You know, it's a journey through life, isn't it? And uh, you're ne- the great thing about life is you're never going to get everything you want. So, but it doesn't stop you trying to get everything you want. Hmm. Uh, you're, you're bound to lose the odd round, but you just mustn't lose the fight. So, what did the future hold for match room sport? I think the boxing's going to get bigger and bigger. You know, Eddie is uh, going to become a global force in the same way as. Dana White is a global force for UFC. Eddie will be the boxing equivalent. Uh, you'll never own boxing. You'll never take everybody out of the game like I have in other sports because it's so diversified. But he will be place to go. Every young boxer, really, his heart of hearts, when he looks in the mirror and tells himself the truth, every young boxer would like to be promoted by Eddie Hearn because his head and shoulders better than anyone else. Doesn't mean the other guys are not that good. They are good. They're just not as good. So, Matron will grow more into a global force. I think already we're starting Matron Mexico, Matron Australia, Matron Germany starting sometime this year. We will grow the sport of nine ball pool to make it the same size or bigger than snooker and have some fun along the way, you know? We have a big party coming up, boys. You're not invited, by the way, because you're too young. <laughs> uh, we have a big party coming up on July the 2nd to celebrate 40 years of Metro nice amazing it's going to be wild man it's going to be totally wild so uh, and I, I mustn't do what my last big party we had here at Matrim headquarters mm. uh, was my 70 and I'm terribly sorry to have to tell you that I may have had a glass or two too many I managed <laughs> on the way home I managed to fall in a hitch <laughs> and my, wife, my wife was not best pleased. I'm going to have to behave myself a bit with this year. But, uh, you know what? You, you want to behave, but you don't want to be. You don't want to be the old geezer in the corner. So I for you youngsters, you know, mm. I give you, I give you half my money to have your years swap you. You know, mm. uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't yeah. do that because it's a stupid deal, isn't it? It's a stupid deal. So what's ahead of Matchroom? I think lots of fun, lots of innovation, lots of risks. A few tears, a few smiles. I spend my entire life with listening to the sound of love, and I talk around and I see people with a smile on their face. That's all I need. The rest of it comes naturally. We like to end uh, our podcast by asking our guests to think of a question for our next guest. However, you do not know who our next guest is, so can you think of a question? It can be anything in the world, and we will ask it to our next guest. I was just asking one thing. What gets you out of bed in the morning? With a That's a good question. question. That's a good question, actually. I like a lot of motivation to it. Yeah. I mean, um, the thing is, when you don't, if you don't have a reason, you know, 
I, I do these. I do some. I talk with the, uh, the constabulary, the police force in the East End of London, with some troubled kids. You know, not. Uh, you know, I'm not talking men- physical, or mental trouble. I'm talking about they got trouble in their lives. You know, mm. and they're in last chance. They're in last chance to them. And my first question to them is always. I usually start off with about twenty kids. It's over about six weeks, and when I finish up, I've got about three left. And uh, I ask them who gets out of bed before midday. And disgustingly, out of the 20, only four or five of them get up before midday. <laughs> then I ask them, what sport do you do? For 20 years, they're 18 to 22, these kids, and most of them don't do any sport. Now, it don't matter. It don't matter if you're no good. It matters if you don't try. Yeah. So you put your shoes on. And you go and have a run, or you go and have a walk, and then later on you have a run. You test yourself every day because otherwise you're giving up. And if you're going to give up at any stage, then Barry Earn doesn't want anything to do with you. I don't back quit it. I back. Yeah, that's a great message. Great, good speech. As a podcast, we wanted to raise our money and give back to our community. Therefore, we have decided that on Tuesday, the 14th of June, we will be doing a podcast marathon. We will be interviewing a number of different guests all day to raise money for two great causes. We have decided to raise money for two amazing charities. Both of the charities have been set up by guests we have found on the podcast. The first charity is the Little Rascals Foundation. This is a foundation that has been set up by former Wolves footballer Dave Edwards. The foundation supports children with special needs in the West Midlands by providing exclusive play sessions, outreach activities, holidays, clubs and more. Our second charity is the Lewis Moody Foundation. The aim of this foundation is to fund vital research into brain tumours, reduce diagnosis times and give families affected much needed respite as well as the chance to create some special memories. We would really appreciate it if you could sponsor us and support either one or possible both of these amazing charities. You can find out how to donate by visiting our social media platforms. Just search TWS Sports Podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram to find out how to donate. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, um, Barry. We... Really enjoyed speaking with you, and it means so much to us at school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure, boys, and uh, you put together some really good questions. You actually got my brain working a few times, which is a bit dangerous because it's cool. It's twelve o'clock, isn't it? My brain doesn't normally start working till twelve o'clock. <laughs> so, listen. The best of luck to you, not just for today in your life. Keep in touch, and don't forget set your targets. And don't let anyone ever say no to you. I quite enjoy talking to you two for an hour, you know? Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Oh, well, well, yeah, but you're not as handsome as me. I, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you've got to live with it. It's been fun. Bless you. Look after yourself. Well done, Adam. Thank you, you too. Barry. See you later, mate. Cheers, boys. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah. Boys, fantastic. Another brilliant episode. Tom, I'll come to you first. What? How do you think that episode went? I think it went really well. And uh, Barry... Barry showed that in life you have to persevere because, like, I love that message. You know, I've been kind of like also preaching it on to other people as well. And then I've, he's, I'm also glad about how proud his son is because his son's been following his footsteps and um, we hope to get him on the podcast soon. Yeah, I think what was 
obvious to me was how driven Barry was in his career. Um, quite motivated by money, but I suppose that's not a bad thing. After what about you? How do you feel that podcast went? Feel great, and um, I like Barry because that um, he's talking about um, that um, Tyson Fury and um, Andrew Joshua that uh, fight. Um, talk about like Sky Sky Sport and BT Sport. Yeah, he spoke a lot about the fight between Joshua and Fury. And fingers crossed, hopefully that can happen. And um, I think sometimes it's been quite frustrating, kind of, as fans yeah. when the fights don't happen that we want them to happen. Yeah. And it was inter- interesting to hear of the behind the scenes of, of what happens yeah. with with making the fight. Yeah. Boys, absolutely fantastic again. You both did amazing. Congratulations. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of the podcast. And we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. See you next time. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the TWS Sports Podcast. Please follow us on social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of our episodes in full. If you are listening to this on your iPhone, can you please go and give us a rating and review it? It really helps to grow our show. Thank you and see you next week. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network.